Welcome to Amazon Legends, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became power sellers, also providers specializing in helping sellers, aggregators that acquire sellers, and former Amazonians will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here is your host, Nick Urison. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. My next guest today has been selling on Amazon for almost a decade. He's the founder of founder and CEO of Amazon Lit, which is a seller with a hybrid selling model. And you're going to find this very interesting. When he's not working, he's a fitness enthusiast and he likes to be outdoors. So with that, everybody, meet my guest, Eric Castellano. Welcome to the show, Eric. Nick, thanks for having me. Excited to get into a deep conversation about Amazon and you know, I'm sure we'll go off on some tangents. So appreciate you. That's the only type of conversations we have here. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, one of my friends is a is a former SEAL team member, and they he shares all these things with us from time to time. And and one of the things that he shared is anything worth doing is worth overdoing. I agree with that. So if you're going to have a conversation, it's it, the only way to be is a deep one. Yeah. So Eric, tell me something you're doing very well with your selling account right now. Um, so something we do really well and we've been doing really well for many years now is just straight wholesale where we build relationships with suppliers, brands, manufacturers, wholesalers, and per- purchase uh, volume products at discounts. That's something we do really, really well. So is this an arbitrage situation where you're competing against other sellers or are you just doing it yourself? So a major uh, a majority of our business, about 85% of our business is uh, an arbitrage model where we're competing with other sellers um, and we're buying the products in large volume at discount. The other 15% is more exclusive. And, and that's the part that I'm interested in. Okay. So- so these are what you call the brand exclusive relationships, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. So uh, tell us about that. So first of all, what is a brand exclusive relationship? So a brand exclusive relationship is when you uh, essentially partner up with a brand, right? Through a contract where you're under an agreement that you will be selling and representing their products, their brand on Amazon. So creating listings, running PPC, brand registry, fulfilling the orders, sales estimates of future sales, everything, right? That is the goal with a brand exclusive um, contract. So I'm interested in... The, the mechanics of this, because as you know, everything on Amazon is always systematized. There's a process and, and then you can come up with these great ideas, but how is that going to be implemented on Amazon? So, so, uh, so for the listeners benefit. So let me just lay this out. So yeah, there are two types of sellers. Seller number one goes in and creates a seller account, creates a brand registry account, and they own a trademark on a particular brand, and then they apply to have their their brand registered on their brand registry account. And that requires the brand registry account holder 
to be the same as the trademark holder because that's how you are saying that we own this brand, so therefore put it on my brand registry. And then you link it up with your selling account. Uh, so that way, everything you're selling through your selling, selling account, Amazon then sees you as the owner of the brand. So therefore, you get to create an ASIN. Later, you can modify the contents of it and everything else. So this is your typical private label selling operation. Yeah. So, and the goal here is very simple. You own the ASIN. You can make any changes you want to that particular list. The yeah. second type is you go on Amazon, you buy wholesale at a competitive price, and you add your listing to your seller central account for an existing ASIN. Yeah. So, in yeah. fact, you're creating a listing in your seller central account for an existing Amazon listing. Yeah. However, you don't get to make changes to the content. You don't get to change the title, the description, the A plus and the pictures and all that stuff. You don't have the rights because you don't own that list. Yeah, so very, very limited changes you can make. Yes, if you can sell all day long, you could be the top seller on it. If you have the best price and you have the best metrics and everything else, and you, you don't, uh, violate any of the Amazon rules and that you are an authorized reseller and that even then it doesn't stop you getting in trouble. Authorized, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right, so uh, nevertheless, uh, <laughs> assuming that you don't get in trouble, you can sell it all day long. Those are the two models. Now you come in with this idea that you have a brand exclusive relationship. Mm which means that nobody else is selling. You are the only one selling. However, still, it's not your listing. So walk us through how does, how does that model fit into working with brand register? Do you put that on your brand registry account? So there's two ways to do it. Um, the first way would be the way you just described a couple minutes ago in your description of enrolling for brand registry. So essentially... We would, through my account, I would go to brand registry, have the trademark of the brand that I've got the exclusive with and register the trademark through brand registry for the company. Because as you know, the process through brand registry, a brand registry is going to email the trademark company that trademarked the, the product or the lawyer that trademarked it. They're going to give that lawyer a code. The code's going to give it to the brand. So then the brand would just give me that code and I'd finish the brand registry process. Okay. That's step. That's option number one, Nick. Option number two is becoming a, what's called a registered agent under their brand registry account. So you would take your seller central email, give it to them, and then you'll have access to their brand registry through your storefront. I see. So both of those scenarios then will require the brand registry account to be in the name of the brand itself. It's not yes. in your, right? No, no, it has to be, it has to be underneath the trademark of the brand that that's selling, yes. Okay, so the brand registry account has to be, so let's imagine that you've got a, 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 a company that owns multiple brands. And then let's assume this is one of those old school guys. They haven't yet upgraded to the, the, the 21st century. Yeah. They, are, they, they use email. Everybody uses email, but they don't really understand all this online authentications yeah. and codes and all that stuff. 
However, they did their uh, essential work. They registered their trademark. So now you go to them and say, listen, I want to be your exclusive seller. Why don't yeah. I open a whole new channel? They say, okay, go ahead. So now you have to create a brand registry account for them, right? No, if they, they, they you said they already had one. Right? They don't have a brand registry account. They just oh. have a trade. No, no, yes. So then step one would be creating it for them. And that's something we like to do because it, it, it relieves any pressure from their side. I like to just create it for them. But if they're not comfortable, that's when we say, hey, we'll show you how to create it. And we'll, you can add us as a registered agent. Okay. And when you create that brand registry account in their name, in option one, you are putting your own email address as the contact. Is that the case? Yes. yes. Okay. So right there, there is a situation because wow. that people have to be, I mean, you, you're doing it right. I'm just saying for the listener's benefit, anybody listening, if you already use, if you use an email that is already on record with Amazon, and then whatever that email is associated with, now suddenly the brand registry is going to be attached to those things, right? Yeah. Well, right now, the way we have it is like under my one email for my seller account, I have five registered brands, three of which I own, two of which are brand direct relationships. So, I and see. they're all under one email, right? That I could see them all through my seller center. Right. Okay. Uh, alternatively, what you are saying is if they have a brand registry account, they can invite you as a registered agent. Yes. And then, uh, and then you, so does that give you, okay, I understand. So now suddenly you have access to brand registry, which means you can file complaints and do anything yeah. you want. Uh, and then I'll how does, yeah. how is that linked to your cell central account for that particular brand? Um, so you have full control. So if you wanted to edit listings, you could pop in and edit listings. If you wanted to remove a seller for whatever, let's say they're selling inauthentic products or whatever the case may be, that would be um, done through the support that's, that brand registry offers. So it wouldn't be done on the, on the 3P Seller Central side. It would be done through brand registry submitting those. Yeah. So uh, the, the key here that I'm uh, thinking and tell me if this is accurate, but the email address you used on the brand registry account is the same as the email on Cell Central Primary. And because it's the same, you are now able to edit the listings for that particular brand. Is that right? Yeah. Correct. Correct. If, it's, if they are not the same, then you cannot edit the listings, I'm assuming. Yeah, well, you wouldn't be able, you wouldn't be able to log into, well, you would be able to, no, you could if they weren't the same, because you would just be able to log into brand registry with that different email address, right? But you're right, it wouldn't have the connection through, so no, it has to be the same. You're right, Nick, right. it has to be the same, because it wouldn't have the connection to recognize that you are a brand owner. Right, right, exactly. So yeah. how, because editing a listing Creating a listing, editing a listing is done through Cell Central. Uh, however, um, every the, the rights to be the owner of a brand is done through brand registry. So, how is the connection between Cell Central and brand registry materialized if you are the registered agent? 
because then it's a different email addresses. Yeah. So uh, I know from my side, like for example, I was editing. We we uh, represent a, a Nestle company, so super large, multi billion dollar business. Um, we represent one of their product lines on Amazon. So I made some listing changes to their listings yesterday. And what I do is I I make the edits in Seller Central, right? And then sometimes I have to go to Brand Registry and go to Customer Support to kind of give them a push in the back end to update the listing edits that I made on Seller Central. I see. I see. Okay. Not and always though. So not always. Sometimes directly through Seller Central, the change goes into play. Like this morning, I made some changes. They were immediately affected. But if they're not, I got to get on the on the support with Brand Registry to give them a back-end push. Yeah. So, uh, so what I'm thinking is when you assign somebody as a registered agent, you are probably doing that for a specific brand. And, and therefore, when you do that, that email address that they submit as registered agent, if it's for a seller central account, that may automatically be linked. Yeah. Yeah. I've never had any issues with any connection. So Yeah. Okay. All right. Cool. So this is, uh, so what is the primary advantage that brand exclusive relationships offer? Um, control is the primary advantage. So control and you're able to really hone in and focus on growing the brand. Because that's the goal, right? Partner up with these brands who are good at growing brands. They're great at creating products. They're not good at selling on Amazon. I'm good at selling on Amazon. So I take over their Amazon side so they could focus on growing the brand and I'll scale out their listings, brand registry, enhanced brand content, PPC, um, you know, uh, projections for future stock and sales, everything. We'll take care of it. Okay, cool. So... Let's move on to the next phase. So uh, give us the roadmap, so to speak. How do you go about implementing this? <clears throat> Once you say, of course, first thing is agree, find the company yeah. and then, you know, uh, agree with them. Uh, what is the best argument to give? Why should they so say I'm a brand owner and then you come to me and then why should I give you this? Why not somebody else? Why not do it yeah. myself? Yeah. So one of the one of the issues we usually like to point out is is their current landscape on Amazon. And usually when you when you dive into some of these keeper charts and look at the data, you'll see historical out of stocks or inconsistent price points. Like these are things that de uh, deter consumers from purchasing brands, right? If they come in today, it's twenty five bucks. Tomorrow it's thirty five. It's not really consumer friendly. So like. Bringing those consistent price points and consistent in stocks is a huge selling point because they're able to scale revenue in their own company just by making those simple changes. So you are going in and saying that, look, this is now all over the place and then let yes. me do this. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this is the scenario where other people are selling it and, and therefore there's all these inconsistencies. Like I have a client... <clears throat> And they they sold masks. They sell masks, mm -hmm. and these are not anything to do with COVID. This is just um, like woodworking and iron workers and and things like that. And they did very well, of course, during COVID because everybody needed any kind of mask they could get their hands on. Yeah. But they made a big mistake, and they supplied a retailer with mm -hmm. 
and they all overbought anyway. So, and the next thing is the market is flooded with masks because one of the retailers unloaded for yeah. uh, pennies on the dollar. Yeah. So they made a huge loss. However, the, they, the mask was selling at $35 and it started selling at seven, $8 a piece. Yeah. And they had no idea how to do, how to protect their brand or nothing, none of those things. So, um, and there are so many sellers, like on each listing is like eight, nine companies selling. Yeah. So what you are saying is, instead of a brand selling, you know, their items selling real low and then in and out of stock all the time, you go to the brand and say, look, let me handle the selling. Give me an exclusive relationship. And I'll clean up this whole landscape and I'll keep ramping up your revenues. That's yes. the value proposition. Is that right? Yeah. So, so it's not a fight to the bottom. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how quickly that happens. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and one of the big components of these brand relationships, Nick, and I'm glad you brought it up, is really explaining to the brand the importance of controlling your supply chain as well, making sure your inventory is not getting into the wrong hands. Because if it gets into the wrong hands and ends up on these marketplaces, it becomes challenging to start removing it from the marketplaces. Yeah. yeah. And by having a brand exclusive relationship, you also prevent the manufacturer itself selling to resellers, which they do. Yeah. And then suddenly you are competing against those resellers. You eliminate that issue. Yes. yes. Yeah. So okay. it's a partnership because they have to do their part. They have to actually abide by the contract and, and be willing not to sell to these resellers and also be mindful because some of them are pretty sneaky the way they get in to open accounts, you know? Oh, yeah, 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 always. They, they, people are always trying on Amazon, trying to gain the system. You know, yeah. after 20 plus years, it's coming up to 30 years. Wow. They, they're still thinking this is like a trillion dollar company. They yeah. have perfected and there are still some people with their little minds. They think they can game the system. Yeah. And they might get away with it for a little while, but in the long yes. run, it's not going to pay off. Yeah. And it's not for the long run. Okay. No. So the, the other argument is, okay, why give you this brand exclusive thing? Why can't they do it themselves? Yeah. Uh, because as we, we know, and I'm sure people listening, and selling on Amazon is not a breeze. It's not something you just wake up one day and say, hey, I'm going to start selling on Amazon. There's a lot of um, subtle nuances and, and things you need to know, like projections and forecasting and ranking these products and updating the images and dealing with customer complaints. And like, there's a whole ball game that's completely different from what they do. So most of them, they don't know where to start. And they're looking for people like me to kind of guide them on that journey. Yeah. And uh, in your relationship, uh, do, you, do you expect them to contribute towards creating content like pictures and videos? Or do you do that all at your own expense? Yeah, so for, for images, I, I have no problem taking on all the images. I have a great lady that I use that I've had a relationship with overseas, and I can get images whipped up super cheap. But as far as ad spend, I usually like to request that they cover it, 100% of it. And then any video content, I would request that they would be creating as well. Okay. And uh, do you get a pushback on it or no? 
Uh, no, because usually what I do is I say, hey, listen, I'll run ads for two months. I'll cover the expenses. I have no problem spending a couple thousand dollars for my business to prove that this model works and spending on PPC can really grow. And then I'll come back with the data. And if you're comfortable, you take on ad spend. I see. Okay. All right. My next question is, uh, now that you are doing this and you're doing this, of course, with several companies, right? Yeah. So give us about the oversight on how do you know, what are some uh, methodologies to monitor how much money it's making and also uh, some things that you uh, use as performance metrics. What yeah. what do you look for in, in a relationship like that as a performance metric? Yeah, so one of the things that in a lot of brands you'll find is they're looking for year over year cost of goods growth. Right. They're looking like, are you spending more money with me? So something we track is how much money we're spending on inventory with these companies. So, for example, one of the businesses uh, we've been we've been exclusive with them for almost three full years now. Year one, we spent about two hundred thousand. Uh, year two, we spent about five hundred. And last year we spent about eight hundred. So this year we're in projection to do about 1.2, 1.3. So year over year, when you look at it in the big picture, the business is growing. I see. So that means that in your financial system, you've got to have a way to track cost of goods sold and sales and Order all the associated expenses per brand, right? Yes, 100% per brand we're tracking that not only per brand, but also on the ASIN level to find out what the winning SKUs are so we can make sure that those are consistently replenished and, and running proper ads and coupons to keep them ranked well. Okay, so as far as the, uh, the metric, one metric that I heard uh, is very valuable is uh, cost of goods sold growth per brand. That is a metric that you always want to yeah. monitor. Uh, what else? What else can you share as far as monitoring the success of a brand? Yeah, so something cool is order size. We like to track order size per specific product. This way we can run volume discounts because if a customer is historically purchasing multiple items in one purchase, I want to reward that customer with 10% off the additional item or 15% off two additional items. So like tracking that data and also the demographics that brand registry provides They'll tell you if the customers are married, single, what their age is, what their level of college education or, or uh, education is, where they live. They give you so much data and you could run back to the brand with that data. That brand could build out TikTok campaigns, Google campaigns based on that data that Amazon provides and drive additional traffic to the brand. So it's you can work it in a lot of different ways. Then. Yeah. So you brought up an interesting point just now. And in fact, I picked that up as a curious point because I was analyzing the business reports uh, last mm -hmm. week. And then suddenly something hit me. They, Amazon reports units ordered, mm -hmm. in other words, total number of pieces. And then they also report Total order items. Yeah. So I thought, okay, we all know average order value, right? Which is what you mentioned. 
Average order value means what? It means total sales divided by number of orders, right? So yeah. that's your average order value. And you can do this per SKU, per yeah. ASIN. And so they report that per ASIN, okay? They also report units ordered. Yeah. And as you know, they are not equal. So you can have one order with three items. They may buy three, buy three pieces. And then suddenly it hit me. Wouldn't it be neat to have another metric called, instead of calling it average order value, why not call it average item value mm. called AIV? Yes, oh what God. happens then when you oh, compare? Oh, go ahead, Nick. Go ahead. When you compare AOV with AIV, what you are seeing is how many pieces people are buying per order. And mm. if they are close to each other, you want to make them far from each other. So you can offer coupons and things like that. Yeah. And if they are already far, that means something is working, then you do more of it. So I thought this would be a neat thing. Uh, tell me what you think about that approach. Um, well, I'm just a little confused by, by your difference. What was it, AOV and AIV? Yeah, one is average order value. In other words, when people place an order, how much they spend per order. The other yeah. one is AIV. That means the divide the total sales by the number of pieces purchased. So now that gives you the value per piece. So imagine you have one order, they bought one piece. So AOV and AIV will be equal, right? Yeah. Yeah. But if somebody bought three pieces, AOV will be three times the AIV. Yes. So when you see them together side by side, you can say, oh, why don't I give a coupon for buying two pieces or more? Yeah. Yeah. That and was that, the approach. Yeah. And that's the data that we're analyzing. Absolutely. Because I want to know how many average, how many average orders a customer is purchasing. And the closer it is to two, the more prone I would be to give some sort of incentive to push those customers who are close to getting two to getting two as well. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So this is a this is something that basically you brought the customer in there. And if they buy two pieces rather than one piece, you're making more money, right? Yeah. Yeah, even yeah. with the discount, right? Because what I think is cool through Amazon's volume discount is you could do a discount off the second item. So what I'll do is buy one or buy two, save 10% off the second item, right? So really it's only a 5% discount off the total item price um, opposed to a 10% because it's 10% divided in two because it's two orders. Exactly, yeah. So these are the tricks that you can use. I mean, tricks in the sense that you know, you are offering value. And then yeah. now you can take that a step further. Now what you can do is if you see that this is consistent, consistently that people are buying two pieces at a time, you can make a two-pack. Yeah, a two-pack. Yeah, absolutely. And then the two-pack, you, you have a smaller FBA fee, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. You apply the same discount. It's a variation. You're not doing anything extra. Yeah. And, and and now the trick would be to increase the number of pieces bought on that two-pack. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then it up. becomes never-ending. You can just go from there. All right, great. So uh, this is great information.
So um, tell us um, the model you're using, I'm assuming, FBA, right? Yes, FBA. We are 100% FBA. Okay. And would you recommend, how about if it's a high ticket item? Um, listen, I'm a, I think early on, it's important to do an assortment of FBM and FBA because you're going to establish growth at different, um, models. So yeah, if you got some high ticket items and you want to sell them immediately, then yeah, FBM, you know, but if you got a lot of them, it'll be a lot of work. So I prefer to really my volume products. I prefer to FBA. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, Totally agree. I think that uh, for high ticket items, I would definitely go for FBM uh, at the beginning. But even after you establish a trend, then you want to switch those to FBA because you don't want to be in fulfillment business, right? That's just too much time waste. Nah, and dealing, dealing, the, one of the main reasons we stopped FBM was one, it just wasn't cost effective for our business model. And two, dealing with all the customer returns and the complaint, it's just, it's a, it's a nightmare. It really is. Yeah. At scale. Yeah. Couple orders a day, no problem. But hundreds of orders a day, it gets out of control. No. And the goal is to scale it. So when you scale it, the problems with FPM will scale. You have yeah. a lot more metrics and then your seller account takes a hit and, yeah. and you, can, yeah. you can jeopardize the entire seller account if, yeah. if you're a good job with the FBM items. Okay, cool. Well, this is a great business model, and I'm sure people listening to you, uh, they'll they'll be inspired by this business idea. It's the easiest way to go after. You just need to do your research, right? Right. Yeah, you need to do your research, and you're going to get told no a lot. Most brands they don't like Amazon sellers, so it's a tough conversation to have. But as long as you keep the brand's vision in mind, and one of the questions I like to ask them in the forefront of the conversation is like, what is your vision for your brand? Like, what would you like to see happen on Amazon? So then they could tell you exactly what they're looking for. And then you just come back with that information that they provided. And as far as, can you share with us some tips on how you pick these brands uh, is it the category you're going after? What 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 drives you in terms of well, this is who we want to carry? Yeah, so um, there's a few things. One of them is usually a great way to start is a brand that you've been carrying already because you have a lot of data on it. So if you've been historically selling it and you've been buying it from a specific supplier or vendor, right? Trying to cut out the middleman and go direct to the brand and opening up that conversation is a great way to really start brand direct relationships. Another place I like to look is a software called Smart Scout. Um, and I'll search, you know, sellers do, or brands that are right between 40 to $75,000 is a real sweet spot where a brand kind of sees the opportunity, but they usually don't have the skill set to take it to that next level. Okay, forty to seventy thousand dollars a month. Yeah, yeah, it's like the sweet spot. Sometimes I'll go up to a hundred, depending on the category. But you know, most of the categories we're looking in are grocery and, and beauty. Okay, and of course, it's a no-brainer. You don't want to go to a brand who's already selling on Amazon directly. Uh, no, you actually can because a lot of times those brands are just doing a poor job at it. So those are those are great opportunities to to kind of pitch them, like, hey, I can do better than you're currently doing and you can focus on your brand. So what if one of those brands said, okay, fine, then we'll do that, but you go manage our seller account. 
uh, we don't want to give you uh, how does that sound to you is that attractive uh, yeah we will do that we've done that in the past it's not our preferred method you know i definitely try to push the other method just because it's much easier but some brands they don't want to relinquish control and i completely understand that it's their baby yeah yeah that's great so um eric let's talk about uh, a little bit on the different aspects of running the Amazon operation. So obviously you have a business model, you know, you mentioned earlier wholesale, wholesale being online arbitrage, bottom line. Um, but also there is a way to do wholesale on Amazon too, right? Oh, what do you mean? Like B2B. The B2B uh, yeah, sales. yeah, we, we, yeah, B2B makes up about eight or 9% of our sales. So we do do some B2B as well, yes. So share with us some of that, um, activity how how do you manage the b2b pricing and then also um share with us some of those ways that amazon for especially for amazon business accounts they give you access like if you're government and, and things like that yeah. so some of the ways to qualify for that b2b programs yeah yeah so b2b is very simple any amazon seller can can get enrolled to b2b you just search business to business in the search bar of seller central and it will take you to the b2b page um so like i said b2b makes up eight or nine percent of our sales and the cool thing for anybody listening about b2b is your order size will be much greater nick and i were just talking about order sizes our average order size is over two units for b2b customers um, which is great because it increases uh, average selling price and it's also eliminates the chances of a return, right? The chance of a school or a government agency purchasing, you know, a couple rolls of toilet paper or some cleaning soap and returning it slim to none, which is amazing. Um, and as far as discounts, so we offer sometimes 5% for our B2B customers on some of our larger volume products. But for the most part, we don't add any discounts um, to our B2B uh, products. We just have them listed so business customers can shop for our, for our products. Do you use tiered pricing for offering B2B or just single? Um, so no, just single. There's there's once in a while for specific products, we'll set up tier pricing. It's all based because wholesale margins aren't phenomenal. You know, you're talking 18, 19% margins. So I can't give away too much margin you know, to the consumer. So we're always being mindful of our pricing. So for specific products, we'll go through and offer tier discounts, you know, buy three, get 5%, buy five, get 10%. Um, but for the most part, it's pretty just straightforward, standard across the board. Okay. And on B2B sales, for those who may not have seen it, when you go to your settlement report, you have two tabs. One is standard orders. The other is invoiced orders. Invoiced yeah. orders are the orders that are primarily B2B orders that Amazon, you know, opens an account with their business and they can buy it all day long, but they are giving credit at your expense, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, that is something that you want to keep an eye on. Uh, if you, if you want to do B2B, then you have two settlement dates. You have one settlement date and both of them run every other week. But one is for standard, one is for B2B. So in terms of your accounting and your systems, you just have to make sure that that's how uh, things work and you have to be ready for it. Don't be confused. So two sets of reconciliations and two sets of 
everything if you're doing B2B, no. right? You, you got to be on top of it. And I actually just pulled our B2B up. It's actually 4%. It's not 8% of our sales. It's 4%. And our average orders like 1.9, which, which is great because for our standard products, our average order is like 1.15. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's great. So, uh, Eric, tell us a little bit about your operation. What is the uh, what is the best way, in your opinion, to structure your team in terms of roles and responsibilities to manage the Amazon account? Who does what? Yeah, yeah. So over at my facility um, in the Northeast here, um, we have a 40,000 square foot space. About 37 of it is warehouse. The other three or 4,000 is office. Um, so in the warehouse, we have uh, three main positions, right? Those positions are packers um, and pickers, right? And then a management team managing the packers and pickers. But the packers, their job is just packing inventory all day, right? Processing inventory, a labeling it with FN SKUs, polybagging it, shrink filming it, whatever the process may be. Um, the pickers, their role is to... In, uh, count the inventory that's received, make sure there's no discrepancy reports, move the products to the production station so the production stations can efficiently produce the inventory to get it palletized and then ship it out. Um, and then upstairs at the offices, we have a few main positions. The first is a buyer, right? That's someone who purchases all the inventory that we sell. They're estimating how many units we should buy. They're negotiating discounts. They're communicating with the brands. Um, and then we have uh, a few team members who do like account health, right? Any issues with customer complaints, any ASINs that have been removed from Seller Central, listing updates, their sole job is managing that. And then recently, about two or three years ago, Nick, and this is the last position we have, um, and we have six of them now, we brought on web development team. So they're building out internal softwares to be more efficient in our process, because that's the difference between a $60 million a year business, you know, and a $150 million a year business is your systems and infrastructure. Right, right. How about content? Who handles the content? Uh, like listing updates and images and stuff? Yeah, creating the images and updates and optimizing and things like that. Uh, yeah, so that, that's the buyer's responsibility. So the way we see it is, hey, you purchased the product, you you spent the company's money on the inventory, it's your responsibility to make sure it's selling, right? So fix the listing if it's broken. Yeah. <laughs> make them listing optimizers. Yeah. You know, that's a, that's a, that's, you know, one day they may leave you because they become so good at optimizing listing. Start their own business, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because listen, you're giving them a skill. Yeah, and if they did, I'd say, listen, more power to you. I'm super excited, and I, I look forward to using your services. <laughs> That's the great way. Uh, how about running your PPC? Um, so I actually manage all the PPC in-house. We have very minimal PPC. Um, for our brand direct relationships, we have some brands that give us two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000 a month. Um, and I manage that internally, very straightforward. Um, you know, average A cost on our accounts about four percent right now. Wow, that's A cost is four percent. Yeah, four percent. Yeah. Well, that's that's crazy. I've never heard that A cost. How about your take cost? What is that? Zero. 
Oh, it's less than yeah, it's less than a penny, man. It's it's like it's less than it's less than one penny on every dollar, so it's less than a percent. Yeah. Wow, that's great. I've never heard this anywhere. So you're doing great. The way we the way we accomplish that is 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 high budget, low bid, catch all campaigns for a large amount of wholesale products we sell. I see. Okay. Well, this was great. Uh, a very unique model in terms of how, and, and thank you for walking us through the mechanics. It's because that's where everything gets very complicated. So let's get to know you a little bit now. Tell us about who you are. Where did you grow up? Yeah, so I grew up in New Jersey, uh, born and raised, and uh, I still live in New Jersey today. And um, so you, obviously you are an entrepreneur. So it, I, I'm interested in learning your experiences growing up you know the growing pains as a kid when was the when was the first time you realized that you like to make things happen yeah i was like 14 15 and i would go to you know new york city's only like a, a, a 30 40 minute bus ride i would go to manhattan and buy um fake like gucci purses dooney and burke louis vuitton and i would sell them to people in school um, and then I started like buying jewelry and candy and, and I started saving up a nice chunk of money when I was a little kid, man. Um, I just loved it. You know, I really did. But this did not really start at 14, 15. It must have started way before. Yeah, when... probably. Yeah. You do, yeah. You do you remember what was the... Well, I remember like when my grandmother, she'd give me cash for my birthday and stuff for Christmas. And I would stash it like I wouldn't spend it on anything like I was waiting to, to build up this like bag of, of financial freedom and like just keep stocking on top of it, stacking on top of it. Um, and I did pretty well, you know, by the time I was 18, I had like 50 or 60 thousand dollars I saved up, uh, which was pretty cool. And then I went so to college. Why did you feel you, I mean, as a kid, you know, you want candy, you want toys, you want everything and you've got money. Well, what stopped you from going out and getting some of those things? Um, I would buy them, just not in excess, you know, not, not enough where it would actually deplete the cash that I was trying to collect. I don't know why I had this vision that I had to have a certain amount of money to kind of feel comfortable at a young age, but I, I had it and I was driven to achieve it. So the... So you you felt that you had to save up and you had to have enough money as a kid. Yeah. You thinking yeah. this, yeah. and why did you, why did why do you think that was? Was it you you had shortage? It was a crisis. No, I was well taken care of. I guess I was just maybe it was the way I. It's probably now that I look at it in retrospect, the way my father viewed money. Um, it was just he worked very very hard for it. So like when we spent it, it was important that we were doing things that like brought the family together. And I just saw the value that really money had for a family and the experiences that they can have. And I think really, I just wanted more of that because I saw the cool stuff that money provided for my family. So uh, your, your relationship with your father was a close one? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it still is. It still is. Yeah. So uh, when you felt that, you know, he, he worked very hard, was was that something he advocated that, you know, look, I work hard for it, so be careful? Or was it out of, was it all on your own 
you know, feeling that, no, I should do this this way. No, he never really talked about it or threw it in my face that, like, we work really hard for this. I just saw it, you know. I saw the guy get up every day at 5 in the morning and wouldn't come home till 8, 9 at night for, you know, my entire childhood and teenage years living and living with him. So I saw how hard he worked for it, you know. By the way, was he an immigrant? Uh, no, he was not. His parents were immigrants, but he worked in the restaurant industry, which is grueling for many years. And now he's in food service. He works for one of these big Fortune 500 companies. The reason I ask is because you everything you said almost word by word reminded me of this documentary called New York by uh, uh-huh. Ken Burns. And I, I watched this uh, documentary. It's all about the history of New York. It goes way back to New Amsterdam days, you know, when the Dutch settled and they started doing things. So you, you see a bunch of historians talk about New York. And they also have these, you know, average people who were basically trade people, you know, carpenters and whatever. I don't know how they picked them, but this guy was talking about again, history of New York and and mostly the spirit of New York. Mm. So, and New Yorkers. And he was saying that his father was an immigrant and he came to America to make a better life for his family. And he fought in in the war, in the Second World War. And he got wounded and he had a bad knee. So he was saying that they lived in Staten Island and his his father would get up at crack of dawn and go to work every day. It was three siblings to put food on the table. And he was saying that he grew up seeing his father working so hard. And often, like, he would hear him moan because of the pain in the mornings. Yeah. Uh, and he, he said that he grew up thinking, I must honor this. Yeah. So uh, he yeah. said, that's that's... The spirit, he says, that's why as an immigrant's child, I know what put me here and what gave me this opportunity. So therefore, I must work in a way that will honor that. So you almost said word by word. So for you, for you, really, everything you're doing, what's driving you, the way I see it is it's, uh, you know, you're looking to honor your father's hard work at the end of the day. Yeah. And, And it's all coming together. So. Just a couple of weeks ago, I flew my whole family out to Las Vegas for a week and we had like an amazing time. So like it's all coming to fruition now and, and they're really getting to see the fruits of my labor because now they're getting older and I'm able to do the things for them that that I wish I could have done much earlier, but I didn't have the finances. Yeah, well, listen, what matters is you're doing it and you're doing it for the right reasons. And again, my theory is always any successful entrepreneur, you look at them. What motivates them is never money. It's always something else. And here, in your case, it's an honorable cause. So, uh, Eric, uh, share with us your contact information. How can people reach you? Yeah, so the best place is uh, Instagram, Amazon underscore lit. Also, our website, amazonlit.com. Basically, just search Amazon Lit in Google, and you'll see our YouTube and all our socials. And please send me a message. I respond to them personally. I'd love to get to meet you and, and, and learn about your business a little more. So I Great. appreciate you. I'm sure you will hear from people. And uh, this was a great conversation. Thank you for being yeah. here, Eric. Absolutely. Thank you. Appreciate you. And this brings us to the end of another episode. And I'll see you on the next one.
If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review the episode and share it with someone you think would benefit from it too.